Ever wondered what lies beyond the inter-Korean border? NK News brings you an opportunity to explore North Korea from a near distance. From October 8 to 17, 2023, journey with us on the second ever North Korea from a distance tour, visiting key border locations and observatories looking into North Korea, as well as meeting key figures working on DPRK issues. Spend two nights on the East Coast, see the beautiful Kumgang Mountains, scour the beaches near the inter-Korean border, and see Kim Il-sung's old summer house. Visit Yonpyongdo, the location of the November 2010 inter-Korean artillery bombardment. Observe North Korean hamlets from close quarters in Kanghua and delve deep into the heart of Seoul, the capital of South Korea. Every step of the way, you'll be guided by leading NK News and Cordial Tour staff and be joined regularly for multi-day portions of the itinerary by leading experts like Andre Lankov, Chad O'Carroll, Jongmin Kim, Jack Oswetsu and Gergovacci of Cordial Tours. As a special offer for our podcast listeners, quote podcast when making your booking for an exclusive 10% discount. Find out more at nknews.org slash tour. Once again, that's nknews.org slash tour and use the, the code podcast when booking. Let's journey into the unknown together. And welcome to the NK News Roundtable Month in Review podcast recorded on Tuesday, September 5th. This is the 25th anniversary since uh, 1998 when uh, Kim Jong-il assumed the position of National Defense Commission Secretary, which was the highest position that, uh, that he would take up in North Korea, more or less four years after his father Kim Il-sung died. So it's an auspicious date or an inauspicious date, either way, to have this uh, roundtable. Welcome back to my colleagues, Arius Dare, who was joining us from Australia, and Jongmin Kim and Ifang Bremer, who are in the NK News studio. And I'm at home, so we're doing the whole thing via Zoom. Welcome on the show, everyone. Good day. Thanks for having us. Good day. You're, you're uh, becoming a local. Thank Let's get into us. it. Arius, you were in charge of putting NK Pro's fine month in review product together this month, 38 pages in a PDF summarizing all the most important North Korea-related news and why it matters. Why did that responsibility fall to you this month? Normally, James does it. Well, James had a, a very important life event called a wedding. Uh, oh, yeah. I was there. Presumably the only one he'll do in his whole life. So I thought that I would <laughs> uh, carry the, the heavy lifting while he enjoyed his time with his new bride and some family that was visiting Korea from abroad. Excellent. All right. So let's talk about one of the first, the top section, I guess, in the NK Pro Month in Review, Foreign Affairs. I want to start with the Camp David U.S. Republic of Korea-Japan Trilateral Summit that took place on August 18th. Now, you've had more or less three weeks to digest and analyze this historic meeting between the United States and its two most important Northeast Asian allies. The meeting took just one day, uh, a lot shorter than the 13 days of meetings that also took place at Camp David back in September 1978 among President Carter Egyptian President Anwar Sadat and Israel's Prime Minister Menachem Begin. And that 1978 series of meetings led to the Camp David Accords. This 2023 Camp David summit for just one day led to a much shorter statement, just a couple of pages, called The Spirit of Camp David, which is the joint statement of Japan, the Republic of Korea and the United States. What do you think, Aris? Will we look back on this years from now and say that it was a significant event, a significant statement, 
or will it be just another forgotten talk fest? Well, I, I actually think it's a little bit silly to compare the recent trilateral agreement at Camp David to the Camp David Accords, which is, of course, you know, one one of the seminal you know multilateral agreements that the U.S. brokered, which you uh, you kind of outlined. I mean, Korea and Japan are not enemies. They 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 are not you know hostile to each other ideologically or politically. They they are both U.S. allies. They are both you know strong democracies, capitalist states with a lot of uh, let's say, you know, rivalry, perhaps, you know, unresolved historical issues. But but ultimately, the administrations in Seoul and Tokyo are far more aligned than the parties were in the 1970s at Camp David. So I I, I think that, that that's not a, a really helpful comparison there. In terms of uh, bringing Korea and Japan a little bit more aligned, I, I, I think that, that this probably will be remembered for four decades as, as one of the bigger steps that every side took. Uh, obviously, the U.S., this is nothing new from the U.S. The U.S. has been wanting its two Northeast Asian allies to be more cohesive and more aligned for decades. And it's been uh, both Korea and Japan that have actually fought against that or or kind of, you know, put up roadblocks that would prevent this. Now, one of the, one of the big things with this most recent Camp David Accord is its sticky power. Mm -hmm. Next year, we have a U.S. presidential election in the U.S., the South Korean president will be will change in what is it three and a half years or something like that. So we'll see if this is going to continue after that. I, I would say if if it does have a little bit more stickiness through multiple administrations on uh, on each side, then we can then say yeah this is, this is actually going to be a landmark deal. Until it makes it past one or more of these administrations, uh, I think it's too soon to tell. Yes, uh, Jongmin, you've got your hand up. Right. Well, Arius just said that it's maybe silly to compare. Yeah, maybe technically, because the historical political situation is very different from all the like milestone historical agreements that were done in Camp David, especially the ones that the U.S. brokered in the past. But still, when you see the optics and mm. the titles of the documents, I still think that partly they may have not mentioned that directly or the situation anyway similar. They still went for similar optics where the U.S. is helping out these two countries that are of very big strategic importance to the U.S. and in the region, in the Pacific, um, to have them in one classroom and saying, you're friends now, and yeah. that's it. And it came with a um, also the, 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 the reward, which is prestige domestically, especially for South Korea, because when Yoon goes back, to Seoul after the, the historical Camp David sort of optics, a lot of photos and videos, he has something to say to the domestic constituency. So I, I guess at least for the optics, they may have thought about it, I think. Yeah, I want to come back to you in a second, Jongmin, with a question about the reaction in South Korea to that. Mm -hmm. But first to Arias, what is it that's brought this about? Is it North Korea and maybe China that's bringing Japan and South Korea closer than before? Yeah, I mean... Personally speaking, I, I think it very much is is a China kind of, kind of factor here. North Korea obviously was in this in the joint statement, and obviously the allies have 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 made significant steps to bolster deterrence um, and align uh, missile detection and and other kind of surveillance efforts to ensure that the populations of South Korea, U.S., and Japan are safe. But I think China is 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 the elephant in the room, and I don't mm -hmm. think that you're able to get the president of South Korea and the prime minister of Japan in a room yeah. signing the same agreement if they did not see a, a, a longer, more strategic threat just a little bit past North Korea on the Asian continent. So yes, I, I, I would certainly say that, that China 
is the primary factor, but it is mm -hmm. not the only push factor. I think I think North Korea absolutely plays a part here. Okay, thanks, uh, Ethan. I saw your hand up a, a second ago. Did you have something to say? Well, I know I was just curious uh, to Chongmin. She talked a lot about like how uh, it's mainly optics and how it's a very big symbolic moment. I was just curious to hear your opinion, Chongmin, on the contents of the actual agreement. Now, do you think it's substantive or do you think it's purely limited? Yeah, to when I say symbolic optics and optics, I'm not like lauding them or praising them. I'm saying that the focus was on the optics and symbolic, which means that the content itself, the agreements that were made, they were basically, like Arius says, it has a sticky power, but none of the contents were like new, new. Mm. But maybe right. it's not some creating them... a new alliance, is it? It's just yeah, it's yeah, it, affirming it... agreements that were already in place in a way. Yeah, I guess. What we can call new is that the three leaders having a more regularized uh, meetings, which mm. was part of the agreement going forward, the summit level meetings, mm. and also giving a name to and regularizing the trilateral training. That from policy folks perspective would be big because there were things like that so far in the past years. Um, like when South Korea is doing the OG Freedom Shield with the U.S., there always have been a trilateral on the sideline. But I guess giving a name to it and regularizing, mm. institutionalizing the already existing platforms, I, I guess that would have been the most important part in the agreement. But in, if you ask me if anything is newly agreed, I don't think so. Okay, final question yeah, before we right. move on to the I next mean, top. Oh, sorry, go on, Aries, quickly. No, no, I was just going to say, uh, Jungmin is absolutely right. I mean, a lot of this stuff happens on a bilateral level, U.S. rock or U.S. Japan. Mm. And so it's the trilateral component of this that that is new. I, I think it's been done piecemeal before. It's been done to to, to certain levels of, of severity. But this, as exactly as Jungmin says, is supposed to routinize uh, and sort of institutionalize that sort of trilateral cooperation mm information sharing exercises etc that we just haven't seen with any sort of regularity yeah it'll be really really interesting to see in the coming years both the sticking power and also whether it develops into something more tangible rather than just the uh, the routine summits but briefly uh Jong-Win, the last question before we move on is um what's been the uh, the political reaction in south korea has it moved the dial on public opinion of either president yoon or south korea's relations with japan We'll have to see the quarterly or uh, at least uh, like yearly surveys that some mm -hmm. of the institutions do in order to really see what the data shows. But the approval rates right afterwards and the responses, it seemed like it did not really move that much needle, but just the existing constituents who who had existing thoughts about trilateral, it's just strengthened. Like people who already thought that yeah. improving security relations with Japan and in trilateral formats, it's just basically for them reaffirming their belief through this symbolic and optics showing, like adding, like there were contents that already existed, but what was lacking was the value part. Like, why do we need this? That's persuasive enough for the general public. I think they aimed for that by creating the document names like really catchy Camp David Spirit, yeah. things like that. But because there were too many documents and it wasn't clear what's new, I think maybe in terms of just PR perspective, it, mm -hmm. it wasn't the most ideal uh, mm. to persuade the general public that this is new. Okay, Aries, back to uh, foreign affairs and North Korea. You also included two other stories in your monthly wrap up North Korea announcing its border reopening for its citizens to return and North Korean athletes 
announcing they're co competing abroad for the first time since the pandemic began. Uh, both stories are kind of related, so uh, please walk us briefly through that. What's the significance of both? Yeah, you're right. I, I think it's two sides of the same coin here. After close to four years of Orwellian border controls, even by North Korean standards, mm -hmm. they've decided that the risk of COVID-19 uh, is below a certain level that they're willing to accept people back in. People, of course, being a, a very select few, it seems that citizens, mostly diplomats, laborers, perhaps students that were especially selected to travel abroad in the first place that have been stuck abroad since at least January 2020, perhaps earlier, mostly earlier in, in, in most cases, actually, are, are now allowed to, to re-enter mm. with quarantine. And part of this also, too, is sending athletes out to participate in what are essentially prestige-building exercises. Um, North Korea is, is, is a regular participant in the World Cup and the right. Olympics. In this yeah, except in they this missed the last case, one. Yeah, in this particular case, the... Um, uh, the Taekwondo uh, Federation World Championships. And so this has long been an important step for North Korea to do. And so it's it's perhaps not surprising that this is one of the very first kind of international forums that North Korea decided to participate in. What we're really not seeing yet is any sort of regular cross-border movement. And by regular, I mean traders going back and forth, smuggling, reopening. And what's something that Ifan will probably be tracking quite closely if and when it, it starts to uptick is the amount of defectors, because mm. regular listeners to this podcast, as well as regular readers of NK News and NK Pro will know that defector numbers have been historically low for years. Mm. Uh, and so once those start to uptick, and once we start to see reports uh, of, of greater smuggling, or perhaps, let's say, let's say a higher quantity of items crossing the border, I think that that would be a, a pretty good indication that North Korea is approaching something close to pre-pandemic normalcy. For now, it is it is very very exclusive, and it's it's very you know it, it's really only the the elites that were already chosen to go abroad, as well as some laborers that have a, a very vested interest in returning. Let's say. Okay. Well, all right. Thank you, Arius. Uh, Jongwen, let's move to uh, the story that you wrote and had published on September the first about U.S. and South Korea practice precision bombing of North Korean military targets. This is a, a sort of a story about Ulchi Freedom Shield. Has Ulchi Freedom Shield ended? Yes, it ended last week on Thursday. And this strike... How long did they go on for? For almost two weeks, right. part one and part two. Okay. And what were some of the specific things and scenarios that were run during these joint and combined drills? Well, just for context, in case anyone missed the last episode, um, the UFS this time had more than 30 fuel training exercises components. And the one I wrote on September 1st, it's just part of it. Um, mm. So there would have been more drills and scenarios and hypotheses that they were working on that we just don't know. But this one was publicized, which also means um, something significant. It's a, wow. it's a message to someone else and also domestic audiences when someone else is like North Korea. Yeah. And this particular drill involved a lot of air-to-air -air and air-to-ground strike uh, practices, actual striking practices. And just to summarize, phase one and phase two, phase one is based on a scenario where there is an incoming low altitude North Korea cruise missile trying to attack South Korea mm -hmm. and South Korean and U.S. forces conducting air-to-air -air drills to intercept this cruise missile. And phase two is basically a 
um, maybe you could say counterattack, but it's more like trying to incapacitate further North Korean attacks from North Korea's uh, long-range artilleries, which has been a traditional threat that South Korea perceives. Okay, so were, were these run as simulations? I'm, I'm guessing they didn't actually go up in the air and shoot down a missile coming from a northerly direction. It seems like they actually did, but oh. uh, but but they were cheeky and um, they did not actually release what exactly they were striking. Uh. Um, set as a dummy target, supposed to be a cruise missile. They simply said that they used a target that they use for field training exercises when they are testing out directed or a kinetic air-to-air cruise. I think guided bombs or guided missiles. Mm. So, so, so they were using. I think they were striking something, but I think it, in terms of the second phase, they they were definitely really trying out the life strike part of it by simulating drop dropping actual bombs really to wow. incapacitate um, not just the long range artillery, but it's more like they are trying to block the entrance of the tunnel, like uh. North sometimes actually plans mm. or the underground facilities. Now, North Korea complains every time these drills happen, saying that they are offensive and aggressive. Is there a justification for that, or are they just defensive measures? Uh, you mean justification from U.S. and South Korean part? No, I mean justification on the North Korean side of saying that these are offensive and aggressive and are a threat to North Korea. Well, yeah, they, they did not particularly use the uh, domestic face state media to talk about this particular drill, I think. Um, I, I may have to check that again, but but they have been referencing in general the UFS mm -hmm. exercises that South Korean U.S. has scaled up this time as offensive and at the verge of starting a nuclear war, practicing a nuclear war against North Korea, so thereby using that as a justification for North Korean leader Kim Jong-un to lead their own drills uh, mm -hmm. and like things like high-profile visit to the Navy headquarters recently. Right. You, as you mentioned, the North Korea, of course, does its own drills. Is North Korea mimicking the uh, the U.S. Uh, Republic of Korea combined model of training? One expert actually told me that uh, that it is a possibility going forward. There were hints in state media when Kim Jong Un visited the Navy headquarters, and uh, it seemed like uh, North Korea is also aiming at something like Phase One and Phase Two sort of drill, like defense and then counterattack. That mm. was a way that U.S. and South Korea has been operating on the scenario um it's, it's basically pushing back and then retaliating to to make sure that they are not uh, attacking back like a second strike so right. it seems north korea so one expert it was a south korean expert that was saying that it looks like north korea might be mimicking that and by doing that showing that if you guys do it we can do it too mm, okay ifan you had a comment yeah so Jungmin, i was i was curious from as far as I know, North Korea never broadcasts or, you know, uh, video mm -hmm. footage of their drills, right? Do they? Because I, I really don't remember that I ever seen, you know, uh, actual seen, drills. I've seen some footage well, from North Korea of, uh, of training of special forces, you know, whether the, the kind of stuff that ends up on, uh, on, on YouTube and other viral video sites of North Koreans hammering a nail into a, a tree with their heads and, you know, breaking <laughs> concrete blocks and you know, going through barbed wire, that kind of stuff. Right. You, you, I mean, you'll have the clips. And of course, uh, when it comes to missiles, it's a different thing. They are obviously really keen on showing all their capabilities. But when it comes to actual, mm. like, footage of, you know, troops practicing uh, procedures, I think it's very rare well, for them to actually reveal any of that, uh, as opposed to the USFK, which you know, often... Not only uh, does USFK allow journalists, journalists but they, they have invited and, the North and, Koreans in the past. Yeah. Uh, I, I, 
I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure not this year, but yes. I mean, oh, really? I didn't Korean, know that. If the North Korean delegation were to come and, and observe some parts of the drills, absolutely. Why, why would the USFK and, UN, and UNC say no to that? Because, right, and I think that would be very interesting to see because this time as well, I attended one of the drills here in South Korea. And when you're up close and you listen to soldiers communicate with each other, you really get a sense of, you know, how well things are going, how smooth the cooperation between all the troops is. And I'd be very curious to hear, you know, what's the quality, you know, that of I, you know, soldier level quality. Okay, Jacko, uh, can I answer? Yeah, um, there are actually, I think, multiple questions in this. First of all, do North Koreans ever air footages of their drills? Yes, of course. But it depends on how you define drills. A lot of the things that we just report simply as North Korean state media just ran of edited footage of their missile launches. A lot of media headlines say missile launches, but if you look at their state media narratives, it's actually drills. Uh, many of them are meant to be drill footages uh, that they they want to show their domestic audience. But I guess you're part of the question about opening up to journalists. I, th I think that's a different issue because in South Korea and the U.S., they open up certain drills to journalists because they're confident about them. And they also prepare a lot for the ones that open to public, right? They do not uh, release all the drill footages or images for, for journalists to access. So I think on some level, it's not a complete promotion from the US and South Korean side either, but I guess just foreign journalists have access to the ones south of the border, but not in the North. Yeah, I mean, I was just, I mean, obviously the, there's very limited access here as well, but I was just, really curious to see you know uh, how would north korea pull off these right know, there uh, are artillery drills, drills are like a few in, in like 2013 12 like just way ago in long time ago early days of kim jong-un there were actually like drills that are meant to be, be based on a scenario that hits back at yampyeongdo if, if the yampyeong island fires at north korean island um, so there are like scenario drills that North Korea does, but it's not like not the same as the videos that South Korea and U.S. and the journalists reveal here. It's edited and it's propaganda. OK, thanks, John. We have to uh, keep rushing. We're running out of time already. Uh, Yifeng, you've written two news stories recently about forced repatriations of North Korean defectors. Now, you and I in this podcast talked I think earlier this year about forced repatriations of North Koreans, but that was across the demilitarized zone and being sent back by South Korea. This time, it's a much more familiar story, uh, but no less tragic. And that is North Korean defectors or border crossers, temporary border crossers sometimes, being sent back to North Korea against their will by the Chinese government. It's something that's happened many times over the last few decades. And the, the new thing, I guess, is that the, we've got a, a number of these uh, North Korean border crossers who have been kept in holding cells in China, uh, waiting for the North Korean border to open so that Beijing can send them back. And you reported very recently, in fact, on September 1st, that U.S. lawmakers have called for a meeting with the United Nations about this issue. Tell us more. Yeah, so basically, China would regularly repatriate North Koreans that they hold in detention on a rolling basis. This is pre-COVID, but ever since North Korea closed off its borders, a lot of, mm. well, according to the UN, up to 2,000. North Koreans have been imprisoned in Chinese detention facilities. And now that North Korea is slowly opening up, the whole human rights activist community is watching what's going to happen to these 2,000 prisoners, because obviously China mm. will not want to hold on to them forever, right? So 
everyone's trying to find out will will they be sent back in in, in batches or will there be a mass repatriation uh, that's yeah. the kind of thing that i'm also looking at and and right now there's pressure from all mm-hmm. sides on on china uh, actually to step in and prevent this from happening so uh, in august south korea's new minister uh, of unification kim jong ho he actually directly called on china to stop this from happening and then after that we've seen the first mm. un security council meeting on human rights where the un did not call out china so the un high commissioner for human rights and the un high commissioner uh, for the rights of refugees actually refrained from calling out china in this case so what's what's, what's been happening is that both activists and us lawmakers mm-hmm. are now calling on the un to also start at that uh, meeting at the security council uh, china and russia who are both of course permanent members they had some things to say about to react to the discussion of north korean human rights didn't they yeah of course i mean uh, according to uh, russia all the discussions when it comes to uh, human rights and north korea are political and should not be discussed mm-hmm. In the university, if I have the, uh, the UN's China High stance. Commissioner for Human Rights, Volker Turk, responded to criticism uh, about not calling China out. No, as far as I know, he hasn't. So that's why it's going to be very interesting to see if the UN is going to respond to this request by U.S. lawmakers. So these are this is a bar- bipartisan group. So it's the Congressional Executive Commission on China, which includes lawmakers from both yeah. the Re- Republican and Democratic Party. So it's going to be interesting to see if they're yeah, going and, to respond to And uh, on a related matter, the UN's Special up. Rapporteur on DPRK Human Rights, Elizabeth Salmon, is visiting South Korea this week. H- has she spoken about this topic at all? That's right. Yeah, she's spoken at length about the repatriation that is looming, and it will be very interesting to see mm. what she will say during her visit now ah. in Seoul, she will do a press conference on Friday, and I'll go there to see if she's going to also yeah. talk about this okay. and particularly well, thank you address for this issue. Us. So, uh, listeners and uh, readers of NK News should look out for Ifang's story after the press conference on Friday. Attention North Korea portfolio professionals, are you in need of more than just sloppy and spotty South Korean news coverage on the DPRK? If so, I present to you NK Pro. Born from the established news gathering reputation of NK News, NK Pro leverages staff experience and top-notch technology to provide subscribers with superior knowledge and tools to achieve their goals. Expect daily analysis, exclusive tools, and a suite of research tools that cover everything from North Korean state media to the whereabouts of DPRK vessels and aircraft. How cool is that? In a world where the landscape of North Korea seems unknowable to many, NK Pro cuts through the noise and provides you with the quality, reliability, and timeliness you need. Stay ahead, stay informed, and master the landscape with NK Pro. Trust me, it's a game changer. Interested? Visit nknews.org professionals to claim your free 30-day trial of NK Pro. Once again, that's nknews.org professionals. Okay, Arias, coming back to you, uh, let's talk about sanctions. Um, the U.S. 
has reaffirmed its commitment to enforce punitive sanctions on North Korea. This is a, a tried and tested topic that we've dealt with many times. It's never much fun. And, and these days, it seems kind of hard to take it seriously, given that Russia and China have both called explicitly for sanctions easing on North Korea at the UN Security Council. So tell us what you put together in the month in review about sanctions enforcement on North Korea. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that sanctions are going to be a, a pretty big part of what we see over the next coming months if the reports that we're seeing are true about North Korean weapons making their way to mm. Russian troops' arms in order to kill Ukrainians. This is something that the U.S. has been signaling for months and months and months. It seems that the, a deal may be going forward after Russia's defense minister visited Pyongyang last month. The U.S. Uh, is going to lean on its what is essentially its favorite lever, which is punitive sanctions, financial sanctions, working with the Treasury Department to go after North Koreans, to go after Russians involved. So I, I would imagine that we would hear more of this. In terms of their their efficacy, yeah, I mean, you know, without without Russian and Chinese buy-in, yeah. uh, particularly Chinese buy-in, I think it's it's a little bit limited at this point. I mean, after after six six plus years of what are essentially what are supposed to be crippling sanctions against the mm. North Korean economy. Without Chinese buy-in, I, I don't know what you can do besides kind of chip away at the margins here. Yeah. What are some popular ways that North Korea busts these sanctions? Well, it's I don't think that there's anything new that our our listeners are going to be surprised about. It's ship-to-ship transfers. It's, it's undeclared trade across the border. It's smuggling, like we mentioned before. And so, in, in fact, you may even just see more smuggling happen as the borders sort of mm. reopen here in the next several months, making it even even more of a moot point about how, how effective these sanctions may or may not be. Right, right. Overland smuggling to, uh, to countries with which North Korea shares a border is obviously a lot easier than sending things around by ship. Are there any new measures that are being uh, tried or being contemplated by the US and South Korea to try to prevent this kind of sanctions busting? Well, part of that is coming out of the trilateral cooperation with mm. Japan. Uh, the UNC is all is obviously involved in sanctions monitoring efforts, um, but as 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 we said before, and as we'll probably say on future podcasts, um, all roads go through China. When North Korea is ninety five percent plus dependent for all its trade on one country, um, there there's very little the rest of the world can do uh, if China is, is is not willing to enforce the sanctions that it agreed to enforce in 2017. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Arias. Uh, Jongmin, let's go back to you for some MOU blues. Uh, what the heck is going on with the Ministry of Unification? Uh, there's been a, a budget cut announced and some restructuring plans and some reshuffling. Uh, give us the lowdown. There is, first of all, a big budget cut. It's September now, which means mm. that the regular session started at the National Assembly last Friday. Um, and all 13 ministries and uh, departments, they submitted the draft proposal for financial year 2024 budget. And it seems, uh, according to a unification uh, ministry official, the cut, the budget cut, which is a 223% reduction. This is the biggest in the past 10 years. Mm -hmm. And it comes with political context. There has been, you probably remember when President Yoon Sakura a few months ago talked about how unification ministry should rethink its role and not be North Korea aid ministry. There wasn't much aid going on in the current administration, so it would have been a surprise for the unification ministry staffers to hear that anyways. Yeah. But anyways, the president asked for the revamping of the unification ministry in general. And after that, 
um, uh, Yoon was concentrating a lot on uh, focusing on hum North Korea human rights issues, detainee issues, and, and pressuring North Korea. And after that, Unification Minister uh, was replaced with Kim Young-ho, um, who once called for a regime change in North Korea. And after that, we kept seeing these reports about a unification ministry going under investigation by either presidential office or other authorities, which were just reported. But following those weeks, uh, a restructuring plan was announced by a ministry official in a background briefing. And it seems they're cutting a lot of, they are eliminating the departments that are directly related to inter-Korean dialogue um, and merging them into maybe one single unit. Mm. Um, and there are changes like they are getting rid of the peace policy department and they're changing it oh. to emergency response uh, department, which one expert referred to it as a militarization, potentially militarization mm. of inter-Korean policies. Yeah, the, uh, the title of your September 1st piece, How uh, Unification Ministry Overhaul Could Entrench Militaristic North Korean Policy. Is the, are we seeing a struggle inside the South Korean government between military and security people on one hand and inter-Korean reconciliation people on the other? Well, the inter-Korean and reconciliation people are staying very, very quiet or they're mm. quietly leaving office. A lot of people has resigned over the past few weeks, especially the ones under the that that were that worked in the ministry during the previous Moon administration. Yeah. Some of them are going through investigation for aiding some NGOs without approval from the ministry. Um, some of them are just really staying quiet. And uh, that just happens a lot to unification ministry, not just under the UN administration, but when the when the government changes, they the the one of the things that changes the most is their policy in North Korea, right? So, yeah. which means that their work changes and their priority changes, and that's what's happening right now, basically. Now, I saw that the uh, the figure for the budget cut included a forty two percent cut in the budget for inter Korean economic cooperation, including the operation of the Kaesong Industrial Complex. Now. That would seem to be a bit of a no-brainer, given that Kaesong hasn't been run by South Korea <laughs> since February 2016. So that's seven and a half years ago already. Is there any, I mean, I'd be surprised that there's any budget for inter-Korean economic cooperation, including Kaesong at all. Right. I think it was related to, some part of it is related to respond, taking care of the companies that took the hit when the Kaesong industrial um, complex uh, shut down. Some of them was to manage the inter-Korean that the, the KIC building still in Kaesong, which was meant to be revived once yep. the cooperation starts. And it does, it's an actual building, actual staffer. So which means that there is a budget for that, which means there uh, has been budget for that. Um, yep. And I think it's pretty reasonable for them to cut down some of the inter-Korean departments because there has been nothing going on, not just under yep. this administration, but for the past few years. Right. But I guess like the, 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 the worries that some of the experts had is that it's fine to cut the budgets, but the department cuts, elimination, mm. changing the names, I think it could have a long-lasting effect right. on the way they see the policy, it's a potential policies. Yeah, of course. I mean, the, the Ministry of Unification over its decades has gone through a number of changes. It wasn't always even a ministry, right? It was originally a, yeah. an office. I, I can't remember. Was it under the prime minister? It was an office, and then it became elevated to the status of ministry back in the 1990s. Yeah. Um, so these things change from time to time. It, it remains to be seen, I guess, what, what comes of it. Are there any details that didn't make it to print in your stories, either because of time or space considerations? Well, I there is a part where I mentioned the NIS potential involvement ah, uh, yes. because that because that wasn't fully confirmed yet or finalized yet. So I mm -hmm. uh, toned it down a little bit in the report. 
but there has been increasing the rumors about the the Intel department and Intel officials, um, how they might be involved more and more under this administration with the unification ministry work, because there are some in, in Seoul who sees the unification ministry's main role not as someone who coordinates the inter-Korean dialogue or cooperation, mm -hmm. but a, a department that helps out other yeah. agencies that analyzes North Korea risks. And it seems like, as far as I confirmed, it seems NIS and the ministry is definitely discussing right now the idea of dispatching an NIS official to the Intel Analysis Bureau, which used to be Political Analysis Bureau, but they're changing the name. So it seems like right. it's under a bigger con political context of how right. they see unification and the roadmap, which is another thing I couldn't include in the story. Next year, we will see a new unification roadmap that will stay for decades. And mm -hmm. this might be related to that. Wow. Okay. That is very interesting. Okay. Thank you, John. Yifang, back to you. Uh, this Weird new group offering bounty for intelligence on North Korea. You put out a story on August 30th. Obscure new group offers $5 million bounty for critical info on North Korea. Who or what is or are uh, March of Liberty, Ifang? Yeah, so this week, I think it was, me and some colleagues got an email from a mysterious new organization called March of Liberty press release in which they said they would offer up to $5 million for critical info on the DPRK mm -hmm. to emancipate its citizens. Mm. And, you know, what, what struck me the most is how similar it is to a U.S. State Department program called Rewards for Justice, which ah. essentially also offers $5 million for disruption of huh. DPRK illicit activities. So you know, I was kind of wondering, is this... Yeah, a legit group, but on their website, they listed a crypto wallet that did seem to be a legitimate crypto wallet with about $900,000 worth of Bitcoin. And mm -hmm. according to them, I've been emailing back and forth with, with this mysterious group. Uh -huh, so you are in touch with the, the March for Justice, a March for Liberty. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I, I emailed them to basically ask, you know, who are you guys? Yeah. Well, they didn't answer that question, but uh -huh. um, I also asked, why should people trust you guys and then they said um well basically our cryptocurrency wallet containing 34 bitcoins yeah should be a show of uh, our trustworthiness hmm. um yeah but just showing a, a crypto strange. wallet and it's, it's balanced can you be sure that that wallet belongs to that group no as far as i i know that's you know that's yeah. the whole point of of of, of cryptocurrency right? It's, right it's difficult to to link that to a specific organization or individual yeah yeah, until they start transferring Bitcoin from their wallet to someone else's, it's really hard to know. Could this be a yeah. trick or a trap? For sure. I mean, at this point, we just know so little about this group. Um, I've talked to some experts um, and who told me that, you know, people should be really careful mm. uh, to contact them with information because, you know, you don't know who's behind it. It could be a counterintelligence uh, program by uh, any government, including North Korea, or it could be a bunch of jokers, right? Mm. You don't know. But yeah. so far, they're not doing a great job at um, creating trust with the, the amount of secrecy that you know, right. they're putting out right now. And the, the, there's a cell phone number on the website, which is a, a Thai cell phone number. And I, I was reminded, I saw a video last week about, uh, uh, coincidentally, a, uh, a Dutch guy who ran a, a dark web website, sort of like a dark web version of eBay, where people could buy and sell drugs. And he was hiding out in Thailand. So the, it... it just having a Thai cell phone number there, it, it could be a little sketchy. 
It could it could mean anything, honestly. Like maybe it's just a SIM card, tourism SIM card. Right. Uh, we just don't know. But the point is that you know it's completely unclear who this group is. Yeah. Um, and that's you know one of those things when you report on North Korea, sometimes just mysterious individuals or groups just pop up, and you never know if it's legitimate or not. Mm. And that's also what makes it, of course, exciting to report yeah. on. Are there any signs that this group is related to, for example, Free Chosun or any other previously existing groups? No, not really. I mean, people uh, started saying when when this group popped up that there would be some similarities, but I didn't really see that. When it comes to, for example, the English language on the website, it yeah. kind of seems that it's not written by a, a native English speaker. And also their emails definitely were not from a native speaker. Yeah. Interestingly enough, they do have some... Korean on the website as well, and they use North Korean spelling, for example, mm. for the word computer. Yeah. Ah. But they told me this this March of Liberty, this group told me that, you know, they did that with the help of a defector to make it seem more welcoming to North oh. Koreans who might be willing to give information. But then again, maybe it's a trap. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Keep an eye on that. Very interesting. Thank you, Ethan. Let me ask you this. You're listening to the NK News podcast, so you know more about North Korea than most. But how about the South? To really understand what's happening on the peninsula, you need to know about South Korea. And now you can, through our new Korea Pro news and analysis service. This is not your average news service. It's a thoroughly researched analysis of South Korea's politics, society, and economy from an international perspective. But you know what the cherry on top is? the absolute lack of commercial influences. No ads, no sponsored articles. It's just pure, objective analysis by a team of qualified specialists. And the best part? As a listener of this podcast, you get a 25% discount. All you have to do is use the coupon code PODCAST during your sign-up. So head over to careerpro.org podcast and start your journey with CareerPro. That's careerpro.org podcast. Arius, uh, North Korea belatedly made a statement about Travis King, the uh, U.S. soldier who ran across the demilitarized zone, well, I guess a month and a half back now, uh, explaining why he chose to run across the military demarcation line into its territory. Can you tell us the facts? Oh, the facts are a little bit hard to parse right now when yeah, all right. we have. Just is, say is what North, North Korea said. Then. Media. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So for, for weeks after King ran across uh, the joint security area, we, we had heard nothing from North Korea. There's some unconfirmed reports from UNC that there had been some sort of communication or there was some sort of dialogue, but the Pentagon said that nothing really worked. They, they, they were trying on all on various channels. The North Korea then says that they, they released a statement acknowledging Travis King's status and basically saying the words abuse and racism mm. were what drove uh the 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 army private to to run across into korean border as we wrote in month in review that is very possible and it's it's i mean who who knows what he experienced in the u.s military right um, did, did they say specifically showed... abuse and racism within the military or abuse and racism yeah, in america yeah. oh, in military. that's right no with, with within the military and yeah. um he had a family member that told uh, a local american news outlet uh that that travis had had complained about about similar uh, treatment or mistreatment but he chose a, a really bizarre country to, to to go that it's kind of like edward Snowden uh mm. defecting to russia complaining about violation of civil liberties uh, years back, you know, North Korea is is a very proudly ethnocentric and xenophobic mm. place. 
that derides yeah. mixed race people um, in South Korea and 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 beyond. I mean, there are there are defector accounts of forced abortions uh, for for women that are forcibly repatriated to North Korea if yeah. they're pregnant with a a non Korean baby. So I mean. You can you can read the the Commission of Inquiry report. You can go online. I mean, I'm sure that our readers are probably familiar with with some of this, but it is it is a really really horrid place uh, on on race relations, and it, that that kind of statement coming from North Korea is is I think just a classic case of of calling the the, the kettle black. Yeah, yeah, it, it's still a um, there's still a lot of mystery surrounding this story. We don't know yet what North Korea's intentions are, uh, whether it'll hold on to Mr. King or whether he'll be coming out soon. I uh, wish him all the best. I hope he's safe up there. Thanks, Aries. Chongmin, uh, last month when we talked about the military parade, uh, you pointed out a new 41st Amphibious Assault Battalion. Now, at the time, North Korea's chief television broadcaster, Ri Chun, he explained the uh, the indomitable amphibious strike force resolute in its capacity to mop up the pirates who preside over regions such as Pyongyang Island in the West Sea of Korea at time of emergency is marching forward with unwavering confidence what have you been able to dig up about this unit since then? Right. I've been asking just multiple ministries, multiple officials, just a lot of experts, like what to make of this. And thanks to our colleague, Collins Zorko, I was able to ID what kind of um, unit this is. It mm. seems like according to their arm patch that Colin found, it seems like they're under the special operations unit. So. Wow. And looking at their guns and the 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 clothes that they are wearing, which uh, Dr. Yang Wook of Asan Institute helped me ID, uh, it looks like they sort of mimic like what we usually see as Marine Corps, like Hebyongde. Ah. In Pengyong Island from South Korean side, there are particular Marine Corps unit, which is battalion, which is named uh, Black Dragon. Mm. Uh, that's that's in charge of responding to any uh, North Korean attacks against the island. And it seems like this one that North Korea revealed recently, I've confirmed with the unification ministry that this is indeed the first time that North Korea talked about or showed this battalion. And the timing is curious because mm. looking at its flag that just for a second showed in the KCTV footage, yeah. it seems they were established in 2007 early May, just three days, three days ahead, I think, of, of when Moon administration was inaugurated. So it was already set in stone that there will be a particular battalion aimed at an amphibious assault against this unit in the Yellow Sea. Mm. And they have been preparing for it and training for it, but they just decided not to reveal it for the entire tenure of Moon administration. Right. And, and now, yeah, it seems like just the consensus among experts were that it seems like just from North Korea's point of view, it's the right timing to show that they have been preparing for this. First of all, there has been increasing signs of North Korea potentially doing maybe joint Navy drills with China or Russia. Mm -hmm. And North Korea in general is focusing a lot on their uh, maritime capacities against other countries like U.S. and South Korea in the region with the strategic assets coming in. Um, and also preparing for a potential uh, localized kukjidobar provocation from North Korean side um, so that they can use it as a leverage and they can use this battalion to do that, just like they did in other cases near the Yosi, like the Yomtong shelling. What's the, the strategic importance of Pyongyang Island and other border islands like Yomtong? And are there, in fact, South Korean pirates, as uh, Ri Chun-hee uh, seemed to allude to? 
I think, well, Pengyongdo is one of those islands, um, in, including the five, uh, four other islands in the Yellow Sea. Do you remember Hambakdo, Hambak Island? Um, it, it's mm. also near the uh, northern limit line during the Moon administration. North Korea kept claiming that's their island. And in South Korea, there was some controversy oh, on yeah. whether or not it is North Korean island. So West Sea Islands are of strategic importance to both of them. Mm -hmm. um, and if ever they go into full-scale war, it will be important to have an upper hand on the uh, on these fortresses at the sea if it goes goes into an all uh, all out war but i guess the point here is uh, even if it's not an all out war it would make sense maybe for north korean strategic point of view to prepare for maybe localized provocations as well right uh, but no pirates though right not certainly not like uh, pirates <laughs> of the caribbean yeah that's that's why uh, north koreans say pirates because uh... from their historical perspective and under constitution on either side, South Korea considers, of course, this one as a as their own island. But but yeah. North Korea, um, they tend to see uh, the the south of the border as somewhere occupied due to the U.S. forces joining in, so on and oh, so yeah. forth. So they tend to they they refer to South Korean Marine Corps and Navy as pirates in the past, back in early 2010s. Hmm. But it's been a while since they said that, so it's very interesting. Okay, thank you, Jungwin. Last story for today, Yifeng, you had a story on August 31st, North Korea-Russia talks on new arms deal are actively advancing, the US says. Bring us up to speed on the latest talk about a new arms deal between North Korea and Russia. It's something we've talked about a few times this year on the podcast. Well, I mean, the, the latest news is something that we're still trying to report on, which is the New York Times and BBC mm. claiming that Kim Jong-un is to visit Putin in yeah. Russia for weapons talks. So... It would be a bit weird to not mention that yeah. <laughs> while talking about this. But yeah, we still don't know if those rumors are true and where they come from. So yeah, we're working on verifying that as well. But yeah, it, it seems that at least U.S. officials are really convinced that more arms trade or uh, alleged arms trade between North Korea and Russia is actively advancing, as they call it. Mm. And experts that I talked to said it's most likely to be still artillery shells, uh, in particularly a particular 152 millimeter, millimeter and 122 millimeter shells for field artillery. Mm. Russia really depends on those stocks and North Korea has those left, but also uh, missiles that are quite similar, North Korean missiles that are quite similar to Russian Iskander uh, missiles. So the North Korean KN-23, for example, is a nearly identical missile. So experts have been saying that these are the things that Russia could possibly want if these rumors are true. Yeah. But yeah, uh, we have seen the use of rockets in Ukraine, uh, mm. quite old North Korean rockets. But we haven't seen you know, advanced North Korean, uh, North Korean uh, military hardware being used on the battlefield uh, in Ukraine yet. Right, and there was some... Um... Some open source analysis suggesting, that, well, saying basically that uh, the North Korean rockets on the battlefield have ended up in Ukrainian hands. Was that because what they they were captured? Yeah. yeah. So I think. They, oh yeah. 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 So yeah, just go ahead. No, so I just to just to jump in. Um, I, I just want to also say I'm glad I'm not the only one in this chat room that has a hard time pronouncing the word millimeter. Uh, as an American, uh, metric is still quite um, mystical to me. Uh, yeah. So. <laughs> You had you had this this Financial Times report last month that basically had 
open source supporting citations that rocket I, I yeah i believe it was it was rockets ended up in ukrainian hands and it was alluded it essentially didn't say that they were destined for russia but it, they alluded to this the, the ukrainian cited in this financial times report essentially said that they had intercepted these this ammunition that was you know from a third party country we, we don't exactly know what that means we right. don't know where exactly they were headed as as Yifeng says and I, and I would say actually for our listeners Yifeng has I think what has been one of the definitive stories on this whole thing mm. dating back to the defense minister's visit in late in late July that came out several weeks before the U.S. allegations of a particular Kim Jong-un summit with Putin I would say mm. and they you know, he, he essentially makes the case citing experts that Kim Jong-un was acting as a salesman for his 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 ammunition, for his missiles, for his technology, and especially for his production capacity. In August, he went to almost 10 different military or ammunition factories, and you had full page spreads on state media uh, to essentially demonstrate how ready uh, North Korea is to supply ammunition from all corners of the country. Given what we now know from U.S. intelligence and, and given uh, the defense minister's visit and all these things t taken together, it's really hard not to see this as kind of one big concerted sales pitch. Mm -hmm. uh, North Korea stands to make a lot of money from this, which, of course, it, it goes against sanctions and it's very yep. illegal. But I, I can absolutely see see this happening. Uh, it, it would it would be absolutely the, the farthest thing from surprising. Okay. Well, that's where we're going to have to end it for today. Thank you very much, guys, for joining me on the podcast today. Arias Deer, Chongmin Kim, and Yifang Bremer. Uh, and uh, we wish you a wonderful month, and we'll see you all again very soon. Thanks, Jacko. Thanks, guys. Bye. Thank you. Imagine having the most wide-ranging news, analysis, and opinion on North Korea at your fingertips. Sounds great, right? Well, it's possible with NK News. They publish a truly diverse selection of unique articles every business day and provide you with valuable newsletters and alerts. Opinion writers and journalists include regular podcast guests like Andre Lankov, Jongmin Kim, Chad O'Carroll, Colin Zwerko, Niels Weisenzer, Peter Ward, and Shreyas Reddy. And because I know you'll love the product as much as I do, here's something special for you. Use the code PODCAST to get a $100 discount on your subscription. Redeem this podcast-only special today by visiting nknews.org slash discount. That's nknews.org slash discount. So what are you waiting for? Sign up for NK News today and get ahead of the headlines on North Korea. Ladies and gentlemen, that brings us to the end of our podcast episode for today. Our thanks go to Brian Betts and Alana Hill for facilitating this episode and to our post-recording producer genius, Gabby Magnuson, who cuts out all the extraneous noises, awkward silences, bodily functions, and fixes the audio levels. Thank you, and listen again next time. <laughs>